This podcast is made possible by Isotope, experts in intelligent audio technology. Their award-winning software and hardware helps musicians and producers focus on their craft and not the tech behind it. Isotope, the shortest path from sound to emotion. Learn more at isotope.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Sylvia Massey made a name for herself as a producer and engineer, making records with artists like Tool, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Skunk Anasazi, Love and Rockets, R.E.M., Johnny Cash, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, System of a Down, Smashing Pumpkins, Prince, and my favorite, Big Elf. She recently published Recording Unhinged, a collection of left-of-center recording techniques and ideas accompanied by her artwork. Sylvia recently moved her studio operation from Weed, California to Ashland, Oregon, which is where she took some time out from her busy schedule to chat with online publisher Jeff Stanfield. Enjoy. This audio recording was not originally tracked with the intent of using for a podcast. It was recorded solely for transcription for our print interview. Please forgive any balance issues, background sounds, or lack of clarity. Enjoy. I was curious, you know, when, for you, when's the time for using your core recording techniques and when's the time for something oddball or what's pushed you to look beyond the, uh, the typical recording norms? Well, when I, uh, when I first go into a project, I sit down and carefully budget uh, the time that I'm going to need to get the work done, depending on the instrumentation of the music I'm recording and producing. And um, I'll always try to schedule some extra time at the, that, that would usually be at the end of the session where we can do some experimentation because I want to get the foundation tracks done first before we go off into the left field and um, start plugging in filters and uh, going to some different location recordings to, to experiment. In that way, I can be sure that even if our... Uh, our experiments don't work, that we have the foundation tracks already recorded and that we're fine and, and everyone can just relax, you know, and have fun. And do you feel that even when this stuff doesn't work, when, when you're going for something that's experimental, I imagine that brings a levity to the sessions as well? Well, if everyone knows ahead of time that there is time at the end of the project that will be um, doing some experimenting, uh, I think it, it uh, adds to the excitement of the recording and, and makes everyone focused to get their parts done and not to linger on um, the little stuff um, because we all want to have time to have fun. And it makes the whole process more spontaneous and lighthearted. A lot of times um, it will add... Uh, like you say, a levity to the the sessions uh, because we're all looking forward to having a party at the end, basically. And and what sort of drove you to do that? I mean, was that something where, what was the first spark to get you to do something that was a little bit left of center? Well, I've always been one to kind of uh, um, try things that 
haven't been tried before or to buck the trend uh, as far as traditional recording goes. But the first time that I actually really scheduled this type of thing into a session was on the Tool Undertow session when um, at the end of recording, we spent time uh, setting up a um, two upright pianos in a, in a garage and um, took a shotgun and, uh, and shot them and took sledgehammers and destroyed them all the while uh, recording them and then taking those sounds and sequencing them into a piece at the end of Undertow, you'll hear it, it's called Disgustipated. And it was a lot of fun, um, but we did wait until all the foundation tracks were finished and we basically had the, the album finished before we, we went for this thing. And it could have worked uh, and it could have not have worked, you know, but luckily I think it's a big part of that record and it, it helped to... Uh, to create a mood for Undertow that is uh, pretty special. So you've been pegged as a heavy music producer, but you've worked with, you know, Seal and Paula Abdul and Prince and Johnny Cash and Tom Petty and Babyface. I mean, uh, you know, just to name a few. How do you think you ended up being such a, uh, you know, doing so much heavy music? And is your approach to that production and engineering different uh, for different genres? Absolutely. I, I will... Uh, approach different genres different ways and there's things that are important with heavy music that are not so important with other genres um, the the music that I worked on while I was at Larrabee Sound was music in all genres and not necessarily the the genres that I would have gravitated towards um, but I was really lucky to get to work with Prince and with Seal and with some of the R&B greats, um, Babyface. Um, but, uh, but when the opportunity came for me to work on hard music with, with Tool um, in particular, I jumped at the chance because that's where my roots are. I grew up with uh, rock music like Led Zeppelin and, and that kind of thing. So um, I really wanted to uh, work on that music that I had a passion for. Even though I love the work that uh, that I was able to do with Prince, um, that um, is also very exciting when I listen to it today, um, especially um, the music that is run unreleased, and there's so much of it that uh, he really wrote a lot of great music that is yet to be heard. So, uh, but the the hard music, I will always have that in my heart. <laughs> um, but I do love, there's great music in all genres. So I do love country music. I love um, Zydeco music. I love reggae music. And um, I'll go for it for whatever comes uh, in front of me. If, I, if it, if it uh, inspires me, I'm there. What are some of the examples in the, the, the difference in approach? Well, for a lot of pop music, I think vocals are the most important thing. Um, and getting the right vocal performance, and also the the just the foundation of uh, the right beat and uh, bass lines. Less important are going to be guitars. Um, I I like um, the idea of uh, um, sequenced music as as being uh, textural, and to really bring out the textures in like industrial music. Um, and then less emphasis on vocals. 
Um, some of the harder music, the vocals are buried, and and the uh, they they seem to be less important than the riff and the the energy overall energy in the music. So the the even though um, uh, all instruments are important, uh, there will be a focus on on a certain thing on certain types of music. Um, you, you know, you talked about that time at Larrabee, but previously you were living in San Francisco, and you know at that at that point in your career, that seemed like a real pivotal move. You know, what what prompted you to move to LA? Um, was it a career choice or, or otherwise? Well, I got passed up on a job because I was in San Francisco. I thought that I was going to get this gig with the uh, the Sea Hags. I'd I'd produced co-produced a, an album with. Um, Kirk Hammett, the guitar player for Metallica, and the the band, the Sea Hags, got a deal in L.A. with Chrysalis Records, and I thought, this is my big chance. But they went to L.A. and worked with Mike Klink, who was uh, the the top producer at the time. He had just finished Guns N' Roses. So when I got passed up for that job, I realized that I couldn't continue working in San Francisco and expect to get those gigs, get the big gigs. If I wanted the gigs, I had to go to Los Angeles. So that was um, the decision I made, and I moved there but was unable to get a a studio job right away. So I I was working at Tower Records on Sunset for a while, (laughs) and that's where I met a lot of the musicians that... um, that I uh, connected with and had success with uh, production later. You know, starting over a little bit then. Well, there was a band, uh, the, the singer uh, and several members of the group, uh, of the group Gr- Green Jello, it was called. They were working at Tower Records, and we connected with music, and I love their, their comedy rock. They do um, uh, metal versions of nursery rhymes, basically. And uh, but they got in trouble for using the the name Jello, so they changed their name to Green Jelly, and we had a we had a very a pretty big hit with them um, called Three Little Pigs, and that was on the radio for a while. Um, it hit uh, I think number twenty four on the top one hundred singles on Billboard, which was crazy at the time, and um, that led me to work with Tool because. One of the drummers from Green Jelly was Danny Carey from Tool, and uh, and Maynard James Keenan would uh, also be singing uh, on some of the Green Jelly uh, records. Um, In fact, the song Three Little Pigs has Maynard James Keenan singing the part where uh, you'll hear it. It goes, uh, not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. So it's the story of Three Little Pigs, you get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know you you have your you've had your own studio, obviously the place in Weed, and now you've got this place in Ashland. You know, how is it for you to go to work in a, in a different room in Europe? Um, do you find it limiting? Does it does it just push you to be creative in new ways? We all have our our go to pieces of gear and our sort of comfort in terms of knowing what we can get you know get things done quickly in our own in our own places. So I was curious how how that translates for you. I do have a studio in Ashland, Oregon that I really um, have set up specifically for the way I like to record. And it's a little unusual and difficult for other people to record in, perhaps, because it's open room recording. And I do my basic 
tracking with headphones in the same room that the musicians are uh, playing in. And I've got a beautiful Neve 8038 console that I use for tracking. So when I go to other studios, generally they're set up in a more traditional way with a control room and um, a tracking room. And I can bounce between. There's no problem. I'll, I'll make sure that I uh, bring reference music so I can understand what's going on with the monitoring in another room because I'm so very used to the monitors that I use in my studio, which are uh, oddball um, NHT M100 uh, monitors that I've used for, for years. Um, more recently, I use uh, the Genelec 8351As and uh, for mixing, and I love those too. But, you, you know, when you go into a new room, you, you may not get the monitoring that you're f- familiar with. So the use of reference music mixes that I've done that I can tell on other systems where the uh, changes uh, would need to be made to um, make a, a great sounding mix. Um, and, and so that's, that's basically how I do it with, with music that I have produced. And then I'll use other reference music that, of popular music that I'm really familiar with to uh, check the monitors. Well, I wanted to talk to you about your relationship to gear and the role that it plays for you because it's clearly an important part. You, you're a collector of odd consoles and you have your Neve and, you know, uh, et cetera. So it's an important part of your story, but it certainly doesn't define you. Well, I have to say that I'm really lucky to have this Neve 8038 console. And I bought it back when it was not necessarily a very popular console. Um, so the uh, the importance of of that uh, in creating my sound, I suppose, uh, is immeasurable. It's uh, um, it's so important, but but I don't necessarily need it. But I will always try to get something um, close to to what the Neve does when I'm recording. The 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 mic pre's are very important, I think. Also. Um, Microphones are important, but less so. I can do a, a great recording with inexpensive mics um, as long as there are, are good quality mic pre's. And um, I think it's a, the, the reason for getting a better quality um, mic pre or um, EQ is just to give you an edge. So it's one less thing to have to worry about as you're trying to get a great performance because ultimately it's all about performance and it's in even more importantly than that it's all about the song you can record a a great song with any equip any equipment and it and the as long as the emotion of that song comes through then you've won so i think it's a big i think gear i love gear <laughs> i love gear and and i continue to look for new and interesting um, types of EQs and um, compressors and microphones that I'm not familiar with. Um, and so right now I'm really interested in Russian microphones and more of the East German style of uh, microphone and rat gear that uh, is harder to get in the Western world. I imagine it gives you a new perspective and keeps things interesting for you, keeps it fresh. 
Absolutely. And there's so much good new product coming out too. There's a company called Loop Trotter that uh, I'm excited to start working on one of their consoles in uh, early next year. I think they are making some products that are really good. I've been using their Monster uh, stereo compressor for a while. I'm excited about them. I'm also excited about uh, a lot of plugins these days. The Slate plugins are brilliant. I also use UA. I use um, Isotope for, especially for pre-mastering, which are just really uh, well thought out, intelligent uh, plugins. So there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of runway out there to to uh, to land a plane. There's so much more equipment, new and vintage, that I have yet to experience. the The world is my oyster. Well, let's talk about your uh, your book, um, Recording Unhinged, which is a fantastic and entertaining book full of knowledge, and uh, it's also very visually compelling to look at with all of your illustrations. Um, so why did, you, why did you decide to write this book? Well, the, the book, Recording Unhinged, came out of um, the many stories that people had shared with me about their own recording experiences, the unconventional recording that they'd done on very uh, recognizable records like uh, the Bruce Springsteen records or the Ramones records or, um, uh, you know, you can go on and on with that. People like Hans Zimmer and um, Bob Ezrin and um, Bob Clearmountain shared stories with me about these different adventures that they had recording and creating different sounds that were not done with digital boxes. So I collected these stories and then I added my own stories to it of, um, of different things in the studios, different ways to manipulate sound and different ways to manipulate artists to get a different, to, to get a certain performance. Um, there's all kinds of techniques that are not written about in traditional recording books. So this was that book. The, the book is full of photos, stories, and then I did illustrations also to demonstrate um, how to connect equipment together to get a certain effect, or just diagrams of, of um, specific uh, recording scenarios that would possibly interest people who are doing um, guitar recording or vocal recording so that you can try things for yourself. It's really meant to inspire uh, an engineer or a producer to try new things. And I think it, it does it really well. Um, my partner and I, uh, Chris Johnson, spent a year on the book. And, um, and it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's really from the love of recording that it, it came, from, from, uh, came to uh, fruition. Um, regarding the illustrations and the artwork, I mean, has that always been a passion for you, or is that something that was a, a studio distraction that developed? I started actually as an artist before I was doing any music at all, and I went to the university with the intention of being an art major, but gravitated towards music uh, when I uh, started doing co some commercial work, commercial artwork for uh, the college radio station. So the music really touched me. And I learned how to use the equipment in the, in the, uh, 
in the college radio station, which led me to be able to manipulate sound um, for my own band and doing some recordings there. And that led to me doing productions for other people. So it was kind of an organic uh, way of starting. Um, yeah, it was, uh, let's see. Oh, so where, where, where were we with the art? But the artwork came back uh, when I realized that um, I could describe different recording techniques using um, pen and paper. So I started doing that. I did also keep up with uh, drawing caricatures throughout um, throughout the time that I've been producing. So I have a collection of fun caricatures, but I didn't really start getting back into art um, heavily until just the last couple of years. And now when I am doing productions, I'll set up an easel in the control room. And while my engineer is doing a lot of the technical work, I'll be in the back of the room uh, painting a new canvas. And, and it's really exciting because I can channel the music onto the, um, the uh, painting. And each, each painting, each session painting is vastly different from the last. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, too, in terms of, um, and also listening and transferring the, the recorded medium into a visual. And I, I, I know a lot of people mix um, in a very visual way, you know, in color and um, presenting tones with, um, with color. Do you think it um, affects your, your ability to listen more passively, you know, when you're, when you're doodling or, or doing a painting um, and let you connect to the music in a different way rather than zeroing in with a microscope on, on details of a, of a mix or production? Well, the funny thing is it actually works in, in the opposite way where if I'm painting while um, producing, I still am paying attention to all those details with the music. And the painting part of it just happens. And, and I'm not really concentrating as much on what's going on on the canvas. So it, it uh, changes quite a bit through a session where it will start with one thing and then uh, change into something completely different by the end of the session. Uh, the other thing is is I, I believe that music and art are closely related and I do think of mixes in um, re in regards to different colors in a palette and I believe that when I mix I mix very color colorfully I produce very colorfully and um, those those co colors should be vivid and so um, that's the approach that I take when I'm producing and mixing you have a lot of contributors in this book um, from all disciplines and, and genres of music and production and engineering can often be a sort of a lonely job and especially you know if you're just mixing and the last couple studios that you have have been in reasonably isolated locations now, I was curious how often are you communicating with your peers and you know what what sort of community you have there well here in southern Oregon there there are local musicians that I'm in contact with because I I use their services for session work or for programming. There's a couple great programmers locally, too. Um, but most of my clientele comes from out of town. And I also am uh, as involved as I can be 
in uh, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, that's NARIS, um, whether it's by keeping up with them in uh, during Grammy week, um, I'll reconnect, I'll go to the advisory board meetings. Uh, recently there was AES in New York, and that's a great place to reconnect with the the uh, people in the industry. Um, NAM is the uh, the big event in January that I make a, a point to go to and, and visit all days uh, of the NAM convention so that I can reconnect with people. We're very active, uh, a very active community on um, Facebook and other social media also. So I actually wind up really staying very connected with my uh, community, the recording community, and have expanded it because I'm spending a lot more time in Europe these days, and there's a whole other group of people over there. So uh, it's not a very big community, actually, so it's easy to to meet people and to uh, stay friends for a long time, I mean forever. Um, speaking of social media, you know you're very active, like you said, on on Facebook and uh, and social media. Uh, well, for several years now, I've been making these little videos that I like to post on Facebook that seem to be doing very well. There was one in particular where I was working with a band called Thunder Pussy, and we set up inside a um, an abandoned nuclear power plant in the, one of the cooling towers, and we recorded. Um, some music there, some of their songs there, and uh, I did some some videos, and those went they they got a lot of attention. So I like the the media, uh, the medium of um, selfie videos, and uh, but I'm going to be moving more into um, a streaming format, and I have plans for a Twitch TV channel and trying to do some work on that every day trying to to kind of have a little tv show where when i'm in the studio that i'll have multiple cameras through an obs system that i can switch between um and i've done some preliminary shows and they've turned out great so you'll probably be seeing a lot more of the uh, twitch.tv social media um uh format and and it's very exciting because this for me now is a a um, streaming service that can that will allow musicians to basically busk online and get paid for it and it's in people from around the world can uh, watch your channel with whatever you're doing and can pay you directly for, you know, give you a tip or whatever. It's really an exciting new format. So I I think if, if you're not familiar with Twitch.tv, that the time is now. <laughs> they paid you to say that, I'm sure. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, how do you decide what projects you want to take on? And, and what do you think um, artists are looking for when they when they hire you? Well, I have an aggressive approach to hard music in particular. But I think in general, you'll find that I'm, I'm creative with, with the approach that I take to recording and mixing. And that I'll, um, I'll inspire an artist to 
spread their wings and to try things that they may not necessarily have thought of on their own. Or if that artist is truly um, creative on their own, then I'm the right person to collaborate with because um, we'll use every tool in my toolbox to make their vision real. And um, so I love challenges and sometimes this is a problem because I'll take an artist, uh, I'll take on a project that that really is a mountain mountain to climb, whether they are, you know, maybe mentally on the edge, uh, which I kind of like uh, because there's this very special honesty about the the music that will captivate me. Um, there's uh, other music that is is uh, more done for um, the passion and the love of the music and less about commercial uh, uh, aspirations. And that's, that's music that I really like to work on, is that it's truly art, and it doesn't matter if it follows any other trend, that it would be um, a legacy that is built for the artist. And I love those projects, too. Um, I also love recording in exotic places. If someone gives me an opportunity to go to Dubai to do a project, I will jump on the plane and go. Um, this year I'll be going to Dubai and to China and um, and back to Europe for a couple different projects. So, uh, so yeah, just bring it on. I'm ready. You, you touched on something sort of interesting. Uh, it made me think of um, how the role of a producer uh, can change and what the role is project to project. I mean, some, some are going to need you to really roll up your sleeves and work on arrangements and et cetera. And then obviously you're going to work with people that, uh, assume more of a production role and have very clear ideas and a clear path. Um, so how do you, how do you adjust, you know, keep that, that, uh, yourself happy in the process in terms of your contributions and, let the artist feel heard and um, as a valid contributor. I always have to remember that it's it's their project, it's not my project, so I can't be precious about my ideas, whether they're accepted or not. So uh, I welcome both the very particular artist who has a specific vision, and, uh, and in that way I take more of an engineering role. Or, or just an organization role, maybe, um, or the 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 project that really needs uh, complete rewrites on songs, or I need to just kick their asses and say, look, you need to write all new material. This is not we're not ready for this yet. Um, either way, I I feel blessed to to work in this industry every day that I'm, I get to sit in a room with musicians playing music. It's just, you know, I can't complain. There's nothing to complain about here at all. Um, can you talk a little bit about being, uh, the experience of being a woman in a very male-dominated business? Well, as a woman, in, in a, as a woman producer, see, I never consider myself a woman producer. I'm just a producer. Um, I think that for both women and men, it's difficult to get into this industry. Um, and uh, there's, there's other reasons why women don't um, gravitate into production. It, it, I think it has more to do with 
um, the time suck that it takes on your life because really it is and it, it's when you're starting it's going to be 14 to 16 hour days and even now um, 30 years into it I have those days so it, it leads it leaves very little time for um, social life and for those other things that that are important to us women um, so you know, throughout the time that I've been a producer and engineer, uh, I have not experienced a lot of um, uh, pushback for being a woman. I don't think so at all. In fact, my heroes when I was growing up were Susan Rogers and Maureen Droney and Leslie Ann Jones. And these were um, women that were engineering and producing. And um, so it just seemed like a really great thing to do with your life. And I agree. Um, I've um, passed up uh, some other parts of um, my life in order to, to do this career, but I'm super happy with it. And, and what keeps you excited about making records? One of the things I love about recording music is the new group of people that I get to meet every time we start a project, because all these characters... Um, are almost like little cartoon characters, you know, uh, that that I get to learn their their eccentricities and love their eccentricities and get to help them with their music. Uh, there's a lot of young musicians that I work with, and I can help guide them into what's important in the studio that they should be paying attention to, and I love that um, that part of of production. Um, what haven't you done that you'd like to? Jeez. Um, I, I'm not sure that there's much that I haven't done except for, well, I would like to do some recording in the, um, the space station. Uh, it hasn't been done yet. That's one thing that I haven't done yet in the space station, but I will have to go through astronaut training for that. And is that on the um, is that on the agenda? Yes, it is. Really? Well, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, that's that's yeah. We we can't. There's no follow up question to <laughs> Sylvia Massey, comma astronaut. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thank you so much for uh, for chatting. You bet, Jeff. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. <laughs>